Uh, do you guys remember the first time that you stayed home alone? Some of us, it was a different, different like ages. For me, I was in second grade, kind of a home alone. Like I had my eighth grade brother there, but my dog was more responsible than him. So like that didn't mean anything. It was really the first time I was home without either of my parents there. And I immediately turned on um, Terminator 2 and started watching it because uh, I'd always wanted to see it. My brother always talked about it, and I'm like, now's my chance to watch it. And about 10 minutes into the movie, I realized this movie is a little bit more intense than I realized. And even as like a seven-year-old, I'm like, okay, I'm not used to this kind of movie with these action scenes and all as intense as it is. It, it kind of like took me back a little bit. Um, we can all think of moments like that where we're like, whoa. I didn't expect that. That was a little bit more intense than I thought it was going to be. And the reason I'm saying that is because today's message may feel a little bit like that, depending on where you're at in your spiritual journey and where your family's at in the kind of discussions that you have at home. Um, we don't have a lot of messages like this, but I'd say this message is like a PG-11 message. Um, in fact, all of our messages, I'd say, are kind of directed that way, that we kind of assume that the people in the room are middle school and up, um, because we have a kids' ministry for anybody younger than that. And so my commitment is this. Even though we're about to talk about a pretty sensitive subject and a frequently asked question that we get, and one that, um, that you probably think about, um, and maybe you even asked us about, um, my commitment is this. I'm not going to use language um, or say anything that would be inappropriate for anyone under the age of 11. Um, because the truth is this. Um, the topics that we're about to talk about... Um, they may be topics that your family hasn't really hit on yet, especially if you have like a young teenager. You may have not had the opportunity to talk about this stuff yet, which may make it a little bit uncomfortable. But the reason I'm setting it up and the reason we're still going to talk about it is because if you have a kid that's sixth grade or older and you haven't discussed some of this stuff with them, I can assure you their friends have. And so we want to stay ahead of that conversation. So I'm, I'm kind of giving a longer intro. If you, like, have a kid in the room and you're like, eh, I don't know what I'm going to do, like, there's time to take them to the kids' ministry, fifth grade or under, and sometimes they like to sit down on this. This might be a really good week to let them go hang out in the kids' ministry um, if you haven't had a chance to talk, because this, this is a discussion that should happen first as a family, but we want to help you to understand what the Bible has to say about it. We're going to be in a series over the next few weeks called I Have a Big Butt, um, <laughs> I can't say it without laughing. Um, uh, we're looking at uh, some of the most, most commonly asked questions that people have about the Bible, about church, and about God. So a lot of people would say, I believe in God, but I have this question, or uh, I like going to church, but what does the Bible say about this? Like, I like I like God, but why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? That's one of the questions we're going to talk about. I like reading the Bible, but can we really trust it? Like, is your interpretation the right interpretation? Uh, can we really trust a book that was written thousands of years before we were born? Uh, I like the Bible, but does it really say something different than what my high schoolers hearing in their science class about creation? This week, we're going to talk about probably the most frequently asked question that we get uh, here at Grace Church with our meet and greets and our becoming a member and people that just, they want to meet with me during the week and ask is, I, I like God, but are Christians really against sex and same gender attraction? And that's a, now here's the deal. Like this is a conversation that to me is not uncomfortable. 
because it's, God has so much to say about this. But for a lot of us, it is uncomfortable to talk about it here. But we talk about it with our friends, talk about it at school, we watch movies that are full of this stuff, we listen to music, we all watch Game of Thrones and act like we don't, right? Like, it's there, but this is so important because it's more than you think it is. These topics are so much more significant than you think that they might be. There's Christians that don't understand why our sexuality is important, And then there are those who are not Christians who just don't understand why Christians seem to be so preoccupied by sex and by this topic. The fact is, it does matter what we do sexually, and and here's why. Because the way we're doing it now isn't working, right? Like, it's not healthy, and we're seeing culture, that, and we see marriages and families that, that are falling apart because of this. But even more so is that is that sexuality it has so much significance in the Bible, much more than you probably think. And if you're in this room, which by default you are, uh, you've probably sinned sexually. Like we're all sexually immoral. We all are broken in this area. So we all come before, and it's not like I'm the right one and I'm the elevated. Like we're all broken in this area because the enemy will do whatever he can to separate us from God, and this is often his most common area of attack. Uh, And here's a quick disclaimer before we jump in. Um, This message is talking about what the Bible says and what God's uh, standards are for those who are committing to follow Christ, to those who have turned from their sin, from their disobedience to God and their selfishness towards others, in order to start a new relationship with God. So if you're here, I recognize there are people here every week that have not made that decision yet. Like you're here and you're checking us out, and maybe you're, like you're dragged here every week by a family member or something. You don't, you're like, you know, I'm not even sure I'm all in, but my mom wants me to come or something. That's totally fine. Um, or maybe you're here and you're curious, but you wouldn't say you're like all in on the Jesus thing quite yet. That's okay too. Know this. Everybody's accountable to the sin in their lives, to their disobedience to God at the end of their lives. But what the Bible says, the standards that he has are for those who have chosen to follow him. So what I'm about to say, this doesn't apply to the whole world. Like I can't stand on a street corner and say, this is what we're supposed to do. Because for people that haven't chosen to enter into a relationship with Jesus, they're not choosing to live by these guidelines. Does that make sense? Just like I can't go to another state and try to apply the laws of Massachusetts to that state and act like it's the same thing. This is what the Bible says God's expectations and desires and purpose are for those who have entered into a relationship with him. Okay, I want to share a quote from a guy named Dale Partridge. He's an author, and here's what he says. American dating culture is nurturing divorce culture. We enter highly committed romantic and and sexual relationships only to break up and do it all over again. The world will tell you that you are meant to experience many partners, but the Bible reminds us you were made to love one. Like, I think everybody in this room would say that, like, all the sexual stuff, like, it's, it's becoming more and more of an issue in how it is affecting families and marriages. Like, the number one most identifiable disease in the U.S. is chlamydia, which is an STD. That's 100% preventable. 
Like, this is something that we need to talk about because this will be the thing that destroys families and destroys marriages and holds people back from the loving relationship that God created them to have with him. This is why millennials don't want to get married. Millennials are waiting like 10 years later, on average, to get married than their parents did. Why? Because they're looking around and they're seeing what the state of marriage is, right? And they're seeing that a lot of marriages aren't working. That a lot of people, like half the people in America that are standing before the altar and making a lifelong commitment, for whatever reason, it doesn't pan out the way that they thought it would. And it doesn't mean millennials aren't getting in relationships, and it doesn't mean that they're not dating, and it doesn't mean they're not living together, and it doesn't mean they're not sleeping together. It means they think marriage is the thing that's broken, and it's not. It's not the marriage certificate that's broken. It's our sexual choices. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this, and we're going to learn that it's a lot more than you think. So we're going to jump back to the very first time God talks about the Bible, uh, and it's earlier than you think. Page 1, Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible with large print, it might be page 2. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, is the first time that God talks about this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And what's just happened is God has just created the entire world, and then he gets to the climax, human beings. And here's what he says. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. Now, it, God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Who's he talking to? Who's God talking to here? Anybody know? Himself. And God's not bipolar. Like, He's talking to himself because God is so much bigger than we can picture, but God existed in the beginning, but he didn't just exist as God the creator who's talking there. He, he existed in three forms, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so just like how water is one entity that can exist in three forms as a solid, as a liquid, and as a Gas, I should remember that. Uh, like God in the same way is one being that is constantly in community with himself because he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and they all exist separately but are the same all at once. So when he says, let us make human beings, he's in community and he's saying, okay, for this last part, let's make creation that's like us, that we want to have a relationship with. That's why you're the only creation that has a soul. Your dog doesn't have a soul. Sorry. Because God set you apart. So he creates everything, and then he steps back, and he rests, and he lets Satan create cats, and they roam the earth like little devil-possessed beings. That we, and some of you are crazy enough to let them into your house, and you pay to feed them. It's horrible. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That you are created in God's image. You are God's beloved you are God's masterpiece. That's what it says in Ephesians 2.10. You probably don't feel like it, but you are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece because you were created to be like him and to reflect him to a broken world. Then God blessed them, the two humans he created, and he said, be fruitful and what? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, is he talking about arithmetic? Then God blessed him and said, be fruitful and multiply. It's the only thing God blesses 
in this story. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So the first commandment that God gives Adam and Eve after he creates them is to reproduce. Why? Because when we reproduce kids that follow God with their lives, that glorifies God. Like God brings, glory is brought to God through new life. And so he gives Adam and Eve the task of being intimate, of having sex, for the purpose of multiplying and glorifying him even more by creating more godly offspring. And what we learn from this is this, sex was God's idea. He came up with it at the very beginning, like Adam and Eve, and the first thing he says in this first marriage that we see between Adam and Eve is, I'm, I've got an idea, this is mine. And, and, and it was the first thing he tells him to do. He's not against it, he's for it. A lot of people think like the church and God like, it's against sex. That's so not true. There's an entire book of the Bible that talks about it. If you don't believe me and you want to get a little steamy with your spouse, go and read Song of Solomon. And you'll be like, what? This is in the Bible? I wouldn't have guessed it. Because there, like, there's an entire book that reminds us of the gift of intimacy that God gives us. He's the creator. So he's the only one that could determine its purpose, right? Like we can change its functionality and we can change its usage, but the creator is the only one that gets to determine why it was created. So I went to Chile uh, a few years ago on a trip. And while I was there, um, I went into this little market that had all of like these little shops and I bought this coffee mug. Isn't this cool? Um, and the guy that sold it to me was the actual potter. And he was this short, a little fat Chilean man with like a pencil mustache and a little cigarette hanging out. of. The, he looked like, he's like a character from like, like Stranger Things or something, or like a Quentin Tarantino movie, and like you can't even see his eyes, but I could tell he was a legendary potter. I was like, you made this? And he didn't speak English. He just nodded, and I was like, okay, I want this. So I bought this, and I took it home. Now, sometimes I use it to drink coffee out of. Sometimes I use it to just put like my wallet and keys in it when I'm in the office, and so I can take them out. Like, like we use this for different reasons, right? My dad always used a coffee mug to eat ice cream out of because he thought my mom didn't notice. And he thought he was tricking her until he scooped ice cream out and it went to his mouth. So I don't know if it worked, but like I can totally change the usage of this mug, even though I didn't create it, right? But there's only one person who gets to determine its purpose and why it was created, and that is the creator. See, God created sex, God created marriage. So he's the only one that gets to determine its purpose. Now, centuries later, we can come in and change the usage and change what we feel like it should be, but God, the creator, is the one that can assign purpose to it and nobody else. So God creates sex. He creates marriage. They're his ideas. And he has a purpose. And we're going to look at that in just a little bit down the road in the New Testament. But before we even jump there, centuries pass. God, Adam and Eve, he tells them to reproduce. And then we learn more about God's plan and his purpose for sex and marriage, um, kind of reminded throughout the Bible. There's a book called Leviticus that has all of the Jewish laws for his people of how to be made right with him. So what happens is uh, centuries after this happens, in fact, thousands of years after Genesis is Exodus. A lot of people don't realize that between Genesis and Exodus um, is over 2,000 years of history that takes place just between those two books. And God's people have been enslaved and now they are, the Israelites are enslaved and, and they are like in submission 
to the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And they're the lowest class, and it breaks God's heart because he's like, these are my people. I want to take care of them. So he uses Moses, um, and a lot of us know this story. He speaks to the burning bush, then he uses the plagues, and he parts the Red Sea, and Moses leads his people out to the promised land. Actually, he doesn't, but Joshua, who takes over after him, leads, leads his people to the promised land. And then God stands before, and he says, okay, I have established a new covenant with my people. My people, I have them now. Everybody's together, and I'm going to set up a law of how you can have a good relationship with me how you can live a holy life, and we can find those laws in Leviticus. And if you want to read something that is like very detailed and specific and intense, read the book of Leviticus. It was written thousands of years ago, not for us. So if we tried to read Leviticus today and apply it to our lives, it wouldn't make sense because that wasn't, it's not written for us, and it's not written for God's people in today's world. It's written for God's people before Jesus came and died on the cross. That's why Jews today, Orthodox Jews, um, are still living this out because they don't acknowledge Jesus coming as the Messiah and the Savior, so they're still living under this Jewish establishment. And the whole point of the Jewish law was to let God's people know his heart and how they could be set apart from the broken world so that people would know that those are his people. That's why if you've ever seen a Jewish person with like long curly sideburns, that's so they could be set apart from the other men around them. So people would know that's one of God's chosen people. That's one of the Israelites. That, that's the Jewish law under which the people lived before the New Testament and the New Covenant came that we now live under. But in that law, what we learn, there's an entire chapter that I'm not even going to go to because there's so much in it that talks about sex. Uh, and, and it just shows the different boundaries that God has. And if, if you get the glimpse of the entire picture of what God's trying to do there, like the, the main theme, when he gets to sex, he forbids any sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And he goes into great detail about this, all of the specifics. But what it boils down to is the only way that, that sex and marriage can glorify God is if it's done within the boundaries of a man and a woman that are married together. And what we learn from this is that sex has boundaries. So sex was God's idea, and sex has boundaries. And they're not there to hold us back. They're there to keep us healthy and to keep us safe. In fact, the times that people veer off the boundaries are the times when relationships fall apart and where, think, where brokenness surfaces and where selfishness abounds, right? Just like when you drive down 24, there's lanes and there's boundaries. And it's not so you feel so held back and I just want to drive in whatever lane I want, man. It's not that at all, right? It's so all of the cars know complete strangers are driving with that you never talk to. You can drive in order because there's boundaries, and they're there, and as long as everybody stays in their boundaries, everyone's going to be safe and healthy. That's the kind of sexual boundaries that God has put in place because he has something planned for this. And it's when people step outside those boundaries that you see things start to fall apart. Now, here's what I find odd. The American church and the American people have become completely preoccupied with just one of those boundaries. Same gender sex, same gender relationships, same gender marriage, same gender attraction. You'll hear people go on all day railing about sexual immorality between two people of the same gender, but not mention anything else about the other sexual morality that's taking place. Any of the other boundaries that people are stepping over willingly, and people have no problem with it, but this one has been so elevated, they completely disregard the other boundaries, and it's led people to believe that the church hates homosexuals, and it's just not true. 
It's that this issue has been so over-elevated, and, and like the Bible never over-elevates this boundary over all the others, but culture has. So now we think that the church hates a specific group of people that we do not because we have focused so much on one boundary and completely disregarded all the others that God has put in place. Why? Probably because the people that are so focused on that boundary, that's not their reality. And it's really easy to point fingers at something that you don't deal with, right? Like it's really easy to be a condemning voice towards people that you have no connection with no relationship with, that's no reality for you. It's really easy to put down a group of people that aren't you. Like that's why in elementary school, we get really excited when somebody else in class gets in trouble and it's not you. And you're like, oh, this is good, right? Because it's, you're not the one that's in trouble. You're not the one that's like guilty of stepping over this boundary. And so this is a boundary that very much exists and the issue and the problem with it is we've just focused on that one and overlooked all the others. If you're living in any form of sexual immorality, I just want to say this. Anything that's outside of God's boundary for sex, any boundary, grace is available. And there's nobody that's excluded from the opportunity to find grace. You see, it's not the attraction that separates you from God. It's how you act on it. Because the fact is, everybody in this room has certain tendencies that could lead them towards sexual immorality if you acted on it. It's not, it's not what's happening that you're tempted by that separates you from God. Every marriage in this room, every guy at some point is going to see a woman that's not his wife and be attracted to her and vice versa. Every woman's going to see a guy. and be, It's not about that attraction that's like, oh, I'm a horrible person. That's not it. It's what you choose to do with that. Grace is available to all. If you're, if you're in this room and you've been sleeping around with multiple partners because you haven't, like for you, this isn't something that you necessarily want to take seriously, know this, grace is available to you. If you're in a relationship and you're not married and you've been sleeping together, know this, God has a better plan for your, your relationship and for your intimacy with your future spouse than you do. Because it's, God has a purpose for it that you may not even know about. Grace is available to you. In fact, we'd, I'd love to offer premarital counseling and help you to step into a covenant relationship so that your relationship can start to glorify God, even through your sexual decisions. If you're here and you have an internet addiction, which percentage would say that'd be the largest group of people in this room, grace is available to you. In fact, at the end, I'm going to talk about a few resources that I think could really help you get out of that. Paul was a murderer, and he got in. In fact, some of the passages we're about to look at are written by a guy named Paul who was a murderer, and God's grace still, still spread to him because he acknowledged, I've been living a sinful life, a disobedient life to what God has for me, and so I'm willing to sacrifice my own pleasure because God has something better for me, and God's grace was shown to him. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, a demon-possessed prostitute, and God looked in her eyes and, and he rescued her he didn't condemn her. And that's what he wants to say to all of us. This isn't a message of common condemnation. It's a message that God loves us so much that even when we're stepping outside the boundaries, many of us don't even realize it. God still loves us. That's the kind of father we have. 
And so I wanted to just look at a few passages from a guy, Paul, who was known as a murderer, who God rescued from his sin because he chose to turn from his disobedience, from his selfish living, and God had a new life for him. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is about three-fourths of the way through the Bible. It's towards the end. It's in the New Testament. This is after Jesus came and established a new covenant with us. So we can still read the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, but we aren't held to those same standards because there has since been an updated covenant that's been fulfilled of the Old Covenant. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, written by Paul. Verse 17, with the Lord's authority, I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and they've hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Real quick, here's what Paul's saying. when He's saying, uh, live no longer as the Gentiles. The people he's writing to are Gentiles. So he's writing to a group of people, and he's saying, live no longer like the people you are. What he's saying is your identity, since you started to follow Christ, like that's now your identity, is as a Christ follower. Your identity is in Christ, so leave your old identities and your old tendencies behind, because they are now under the umbrella of the identity that you have in Christ. Once you step into relationship with Christ and into your true identity as his child, all other identities come from this one. So now as a Christ follower, I fit my sexual identity into what God has for me. I put my attraction and submission to my devotion to Christ. Those now fall under the umbrella of my identity because that is what I'm led by. And everything else submits under that. Verse 21, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. See, God God found all of us in the middle of our sin, and he didn't push us away, but he drew us towards him because he loves us. Because as a father, he was able to look past the brokenness and the pain and the disobedience and the mistakes that we've made and say, I still love you and I still have something better than what you're doing. And even though what you're doing may feel good and it may feel like what you want, I've got something better. Because the thing that you've changed its usage on, I created and I had a different purpose than what you're using it for. And if you discovered what that purpose was, it'd be so much more significant. It'd be so much more meaningful. You discover something in your life that you don't have right now. Paul keeps talking about this subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll have it on the screen, you don't have to turn there, here's what it says. Because he keeps getting asked about it. He says, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. And here's what Paul is saying, is Paul recognized that even though marriage brings glory to God, a a biblical godly marriage can bring glory to God, he also recognized that those who choose to be single and celibate actually can do more in ministry than those who are married because they have more capacity to do so. So the day that I chose to marry my wife, Katie, and the day that she chose to marry me, we both knew that part of that decision was the capacity at which we were more freed up to do more for God has lowered a little bit because we are choosing to submit and enter into a relationship 
into a biblical marriage that we are not like a lot of my energy and my passion and my love is going to go towards my wife. Now, it doesn't mean that those can't glorify God too, but the availability that somebody like Paul, that a single person has to do more ministry because they have less commitments than somebody who's, who has a spouse and kids is completely different. That's what Paul's saying there. So he's saying it's good to abstain from sexual relations, but he also says this, but because there's so much sexual immorality and because we have so much lust in our heart and because for us it's so hard to abstain, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So he's not putting down marriage. He's saying, I recognize some of you are going to burn with lust, and that's going to drive you away from God. So it's better to enter into a healthy biblical marriage that can still glorify God. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. So here's the question. Why does God care? Why does God care what you choose to do in your relationships Why does God care what you choose to do with your own body? Because of what it represents, because of what it pictures, because of what its purpose is that many of us just didn't realize. And so we're acting on what we want it to be, but not necessarily what it was created to be. So I want to look at one more passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. This is a passage, whenever I officiate a wedding, like I'm officiating a wedding next weekend, I always read this passage because this is the picture of biblical marriage. This shows us why. Why did God create marriage to be the way that it was in Genesis? Why did he reiterate it in Leviticus? And like, what is he trying to do through marriage and through sex? Here's what it says. Uh, Ephesians 5 verse 21. Submit to one another, to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me pause there for a minute because a lot of people here submit and have heard the wrong definition of what that word means. Submission means to yield to the preference of the other. Both spouses submit to one another. <coughs> in a biblical relationship, in a biblical marriage, in a biblical dating relationship, both people are submitting their needs and their desires to the others. It's not one-sided, and a lot of people think that it is. If it's ever one-sided, that is a recipe for disaster, because that's not what God intended. God intended for both parties to yield their preferences to the other person. Verse 22, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the what? The church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Do you start to see some of the symbolism that's happening here? It's not saying the husband is the boss, by the way, but the lead, and there's a difference. That doesn't mean that a husband, has, as the lead of the family, as the head of a family, does not have the right to power through and domineer and dominate his wife and his kids and tell them everything that they need to do. That's not biblical leadership, is it? In fact, the kind of leadership Jesus modeled for us was the exact opposite. It was a servant leadership. It was a leadership that he came and was constantly looking for ways to serve the people he was leading, not to domineer over there and tell them what to do. So anybody who thinks that this means a husband has the right to dominate their family is completely off. In fact, Jesus even says when he's defining leadership in Luke 22, 26, those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Husband, that's what you're called to do is serve your family. 
a lot of marriages are broken here because the husband is leading like a dominating boss, not like a servant, which makes it really hard for the wife and the kids to want to submit to them. And so there's this hostility that's mirroring in each other and things are falling apart. The husband is to be to the wife what Jesus is to the church, the example, the one who serves the other, the one who sacrifices himself for her. Husbands, you're to put the wife's needs above your wants because Jesus put the needs of his bride, the church, first. She submits to your leadership and direction, and you love her by serving her. Verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for who? What's it say? Actually shows love for himself. This is the picture of marriage. This is the picture of sex. It goes so much beyond our own desires, our own attraction, our own tendency. According to the Bible, a biblical marriage is between a man and a woman because guys are a picture of who? Guys are a picture of who? Jesus. Symbolically, in a biblical relationship. Remember when it said God's going to create us in his own image? Like he's, do you remember that? And, and, he, and then he says, I'm also going to create a relationship called marriage that's going to reflect my relationship with people. So guys are a symbolic, like are a symbolic representation of who? Jesus, which means women are a symbolic representation of who? The church. That's why. Do you guys understand? Like it's so much bigger than just what people want it to say. If this is true, then it makes all the other talk about sex make perfect sense. That the man is a picture of Jesus and a woman is a picture of the church. So the way we treat each other is really important to God. Because it's a way to either accurately reflect the image of God's love for us or inaccurately reflect a false image of God's love for us. The relationship between man and a woman is a metaphor. Sex is a metaphor. Sex is a metaphor of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Here's what that means. That's why God would say that a couple sleeping together before they're married would be a metaphor for the church being unpure to God. That's why a man sleeping with another woman outside of his marriage, cheating on his spouse with another one, would be a metaphor for Jesus putting his own selfish desires before the needs of the church. That's why a woman cheating on her spouse with another man would be like the church putting their own selfish desires before submitting to God. That's why a man sleeping with another man would be a metaphor for Jesus only loving himself and his desires. That's why a woman sleeping with another woman would be a reflection of the church only loving itself and its own desires. It's all a metaphor. It's all a metaphor for something. You either have an opportunity to reflect the true nature of marriage and its purpose, which is an opportunity to reflect God's love for us through beautiful, selfless submission between a man and a woman, or to falsely represent it. 
why God cares so much about it. This also explains why we're more tempted by this than every other area of our life, right? Like you're more tempted towards sexual immorality than robbing a bank, right? Some of you are like, no, we're poor. (laughs) We need to rob that bank, right? But in all honesty, this is the area the enemy tries to tempt us and pull us away. And anything he can do to cause us to step outside the boundaries of what God intended, he's going to do. Because then we're no longer thinking about God's purpose for our lives. We're thinking about what we want. And often those don't go hand in hand. So why does God give these instructions? Who are these instructions for? Who does God choose to represent him? Those who have turned from their sin, repented, and chosen to follow him. So this doesn't apply to your friend or your families that have not chosen to enter into that relationship with God. In fact, if we start there, then we're doing it backwards. My friends and my neighbors who have same gender attraction, if I start by thinking I've got to help fix them inside the boundaries of what I'm trying to apply boundaries to them that they never agreed to, Everything comes down to, do you believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was enough to rescue you from your disobedience to God? Because until someone makes that decision, everything else is secondary. So my friends that have not chosen to make that decision, that's my prayer, is that they might, because I know that God has something so much better planned for them than they could ever dream up. So all of this is within the context of that decision. Would a saved person somebody who has chosen to turn from their sins and start a relationship with Jesus, that has chosen and acknowledged, I've been disobedient to God, I've been selfish to the people around me, but God, I know you have something better, I repent of my sins, I want to have a relationship with you, and God rescues you from their sins. Would that person still live in unrepented sin? No! They wouldn't because they've yielded to God's will for their lives. Are there straight people that will go to hell because they never turn from their sin? Yes. Are there gay people that will go to hell because they never turn from their sins? Yes. And it's not because of their attraction. It's because they never got right with God. Because they remained in their sin. And in many cases, they just never knew the boundaries were even there. They never knew that God had something so much better planned and that he had a purpose behind all of this. There are people at Grace Church who are attracted to the same gender, who have chosen to remain celibate, just like Paul, because they knew that if they acted on those attractions, that it would put them outside the boundaries of what God had. There are heterosexuals in our church that have chosen to remain celibate and single because they knew that they couldn't keep their sexual desires under control. And so they said, I need to abstain. Just like there's friends of mine that have chosen to abstain from alcohol because they knew that was the vice that pulled them away from God. Like that was the sacrifice they needed to make so that they could come before God because it had turned into something that that became their idol. God has something so much bigger planned than all of this. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, your problem isn't that you're living in sexual sin. Your problem is that you, you haven't turned from any of your sin to follow Jesus gay or straight. Is this life-giving? 
Yes and no. Is it life-giving when I tell my four-year-old daughter that what she's doing isn't right because it's ultimately going to hurt her? In the moment, it feels condemning, right? But am I doing it out of love or hate? Love. Because I know that if she eats candy all the time, and if she tries to jump off our roof, she's going to hurt herself. So God puts these boundaries because he says, if you keep running outside the boundaries, it's going to be a disaster, and culture's going to get away, and we're seeing it happen, right? God put these boundaries because he has something better planned. So I want to give you a few resources uh, just to close, and then we're going to sing a song and we'll be done. Um, first one is this. Uh, if you're here and you're struggling with same-gender attraction, and I recognize that percentage-wise there's probably some people in this room that are, and there's some people that may have never told anybody, um, there's a website called livingout.org, um, and this is uh, a pastor, a gay pastor, and let me help you understand what I mean by that. This is a, a, a man who has discovered that he is attracted to other men. It's not the attraction that makes him sinful and distant from God and guilty before God. It's what he chooses to do with that. And so he has chosen to remain celibate and start a ministry for anybody else, any Christ follower, that knows that this is something they are tempted towards but doesn't know what to do with it. So if that's you or if you have a friend and like, again, this is for somebody who's, who's wanting to, to step out of that and step into the boundaries of what God has, that is a great resource that's going to minister to you better than I ever could because he's walking that journey. For those of you that uh, internet addiction is your thing, like, and there's a lot of people in this room, percentage-wise, and the people around you don't even know it. That was me in college. And I went to two of my fraternity brothers and I said, I got to do something about this because I don't want to have this when I enter into my marriage. And so we all downloaded this free software on our computer that you can find. Make sure you get the URL right, triplexchurch.com. Um, and it's a free software called X3 Watch that you can download on your laptop or your phone or your tablet. And it basically just lives in the background. And if you ever look at anything intentionally with questionable material, it emails those links to whoever you put down as your accountability partner email. So I did this when I was 21 years old, living in my dorm with two of my fraternity brothers. And that was the thing that broke that addiction for me. And then I got married two years later, and I was thankful to say that that was not something that I struggled with. And it was this resource that helped me. The last one I'll say is if you're, if you're unmarried and you're willing, like, you know that you guys want to get married, talk to me. I'd love to take you through premarital counseling and help you to take the steps so that you can position your relationship and your intimate life to be glorifying to God, not outside the boundaries, but within. If you're struggling with any of these, we've even set up a link, that's grace.org slash grow, that has a ton of resources that you can go to, that you can share on to a friend that may be willing to, to look at some of these resources too. We want to help you. I know this is a very, very vulnerable situation, and I know this is not the kind of thing that you're probably going to write down and say, I'm struggling with this, and that's completely okay. Some of you want to remain anonymous in this, and that's okay. If you do want prayer, and you do need help, and you're willing to let us help you, we want to, out of grace, not out of condemnation, because... God has a better plan for your life. It's your body, it's your life, it's your choice, but God's purpose is so much better than we could dream up. Let's pray together. Lord, um, God, I just pray for uh, 
God, I pray for each of us here that, um, that we're walking through this. Uh, for those that truly are outside the boundaries and they know they are. And God, I just pray that you bring them to a place of knowing that you have something better. God, and even if it's sacrificial and it's painful and it's hard to imagine the steps they'd have to take to get within the boundaries, I pray that they know that your grace is available. God, that you love them, that you created them to be like you, to reflect your image, to have a relationship with you. So God, my prayer is just that. For those here who have not turned from their sin and chosen to follow you, that's the first decision. Because it's out of that decision that we find our identity and all other identities, all under attraction, all other tendencies now live under that identity, God. So Lord, where we need to take bold steps, give us the boldness to do that, God. Where we need to be honest, give us the honesty to do that. Where we need strength, give us strength, God. Where we need accountability, surround us with people to love and encourage us, God. I don't want to see the enemy destroy people's lives. I don't want to see the enemy tear apart families any longer, God. Help us, please. I pray this in your name. Amen.